Right, well, it is uh, quarter to coming up to quarter to 12 on Saturday, the 11th of July. And I'm sitting here with a new friend, and I'm going to let him introduce himself. And um, I've asked him to speak on this crisis that's afflicting Norwich and the whole rest of the country. But I want his point of view about when I walked into, uh, well, when I bumped into him, let's say, one of the things that struck me is that he said that he's been in the army for 20 plus years, but he's never seen anything as weird, as strange as this. And that made me think, this is something worth sharing with all of you. So I'm going to pass it over to my good friend, Jeff. Jeff, what's your full name if you want to introduce Yeah, my name's um, Jeff Fisher. And the um, it goes in there. Yeah. So my name's Jeff Fisher. Um, basically, I was born in Manchester in 1965. Uh, I was a uh, one-parent family, and from there, I literally grew up in a place called Hume, uh, on the edge of Mossside in Manchester, and I have absolutely no idea why, um, throughout my entire life of young life, no idea why, I always wanted to go into the armed forces. No one, no one told me about the armed forces, no one, I didn't know anybody in the armed forces, but for whatever reason, I used to drive people absolutely bonkers as a child um, because every game I wanted to play had to be based on an army game or something where everybody else wanted to play Lego or do all these different things. So I did have quite a few crazy moments in my life where people used to go, oh, no, it's Jeff, we'll leg it because all he's going to talk about is Army this, Air Force this, Navy that. <laughs> um, so basically, I grew up in Manchester. Um, I literally um, got myself into a bit of martial arts, like all kids do, things like that. I did Thai boxing, um, which was very new then. That also sort of was um, in 1976, uh, Thai boxing had just hit the UK. It was in a place called Deansgate in Manchester mm. with a really prominent guy at the time who had a small part in Batman. Really? And his name was uh, Master Sken. Right. And everyone nicknamed him Ken because no one could pronounce his full name and I still can't to this day. So we'll call him Master Ken. Mm. Um, and there was a couple of rival gyms, Toddies and so forth. From then, okay. I then decided to... Um, it wasn't long after that um, when I um, started to have a look at career choice, things like that. I wasn't very good at school. I didn't enjoy it. Um, so, again, Which I went to, a, um, it was actually one of the supposedly most up-to-date schools of its time called Wright Robinson High. Mm. And it actually had its own swimming pool and everything in there and sports facilities. Which, if you think in 1970s, was was very advanced. Um, and and the, funny enough, the badge that they used was very similar to the Olympic badge, um, which made you sort of like think to yourself, "Oh, look at us! We've got everything that everyone else." But like I said, didn't get on very well with school. I didn't think that they were very good at... I didn't get anything. I wasn't very that good. No, I got a few CS. Uh, good at sports. Yeah, yeah. Um, if, you wanted me, if you wanted me to put my hands on something, and I've since discovered that that's the way I learn best, if you ask me to sit down and study something and read it, there's a chance I might not get there. 
um, I'd need help with someone sort of like translating it in a way into physical. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't really get on with school because it, it felt like it was a lot of theory. As I was progressing into secondary school, um, obviously my love for trying to get into the forces was growing and growing and growing. But what I found was nearly everybody around me was, what are you going to do when you grow up? Oh, I'm going to be a bricklayer. I'm going to work in a factory. I'm going to do this. And all the careers advice was about, literally all about that, i.e. industry. There was none for the forces. So if you wanted to go in the forces, you had to go and do the research yourself. Me, when I was 13, 14, I used to turn up at the recruitment agencies in the city centre. And in the end, I turned up that much. And I couldn't join because I was too young, obviously. Um, I was only 14 at the time. But they got so used to me standing outside and asking for information that they decided to give me a little part-time job. And that was to hand out the leaflets and sort out all of the little brochures in there until eventually, two years later, I was old enough to um, join Boy Soldiers at 16. So I actually um, joined uh, the Boy Soldiers and I stayed in there for about two years. uh, Well, up until I was 17 and a half. Um, And then I actually went into the Royal Air Force. Um, During that time, as in, in the training, Someone said to me, oh, we like you. There's something about you that we could use. Would you want to do something a bit different? And I thought it was mainly because I, was, I looked tough. Uh, and I can absolutely tell you without a shadow of a doubt, that was not the reason whatsoever. It was completely the opposite. So basically, by the time I was 18, I was already serving in Northern Ireland. Um, I'd served in Northern Ireland for about three to four years. Um, that took me from sort of like 1982 up to around about 1987. Um, and then from there, I worked as a specialist working um, in embassies, working um, in protection, basically. Um, and purely by accident, after about four or five years of doing that, and I travelled by that time, um, not long after that sort of sort of late 80s, um, Bosnia, and uh, Yugoslavia had basically broken up um, so I went over there as a UN peacekeeper um, and I was actually on a specialist unit that was on the protection so our job was to protect people in general uh, and enclaves and hopefully no violence uh, which I absolutely loved and it was a bit of a strange combination really because even though I wanted to be in the forces I didn't really want to be in the forces to hurt anyone I actually wanted to be in the forces to help people. And I was also given a great opportunity then because our team medic um, got promoted and left and they asked for a volunteer for someone to be a medic. So I ended up saying, oh, go on, I'll I'll do it. And then from that, that led to me doing more and more medical, working in the Army and Air Force and Navy, and working with specialist units and um, setting up um, what we call uh, crisis uh, uh, um, hospitals. So in Africa, for instance, we went to a place called Dakar in Africa and we set up a little uh, medical unit. And what I found fascinating and what opened my mind is you look in Norwich right now and you see people doing their everyday things, shopping with a bag and clothes and warm and food and everything else. And 
from the times in Bosnia to Africa, one thing I realized is that we're not all equal. And not all of us have this. We don't all have plastic bags where we can go shopping. We don't all have the access to medicine. We don't all have even access to water, never mind our toileting, which we take for granted. And that opened my mind up a lot, especially in Africa where we had people that would walk two to three hundred miles to get to us to get treatment um and i found that like so eye-opening um and obviously on your travels from the days of northern ireland to now we always knew or had a plan and we always had a backup plan and, a, and another backup plan so we always had an idea what was in front of us and what the task was the challenge like was that if something didn't work how can we put it how can we work around it and make it so work that was your last that was one of the big places that i went to as in my, one of my last places i've worked in i've, I've been to the gulf oh, right. uh, i've worked in the middle east um and so i had did, a, you, when, did you retire uh, i retired in 19 um, what have you been doing since then? Um, basically, I had a bit of a challenge then because what happened then is I um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I ended up going into the reserves and then they employed me as a full-time instructor, oh. as a teacher. Um, so teaching, oh. yeah, so oh, yeah. teaching reserve soldiers, um, medical, mm. um, how to become combat medics right. and first aid. And then since that, I've then got chatting to somebody, they were a carer um, in mental health, looking after people in the community. And I thought, oh, that sounds okay. I need to break away from the forces somehow. Yeah. So I thought, oh, I'll go and see if I'm any good at that. So I got a part-time job because I was getting my pension from the forces, got a part-time job helping mental health and looking after people in their own homes as a part-time. Yeah. And then my son, because he, as he was growing up, he was playing football. And then I met somebody at football and they said, well, if you like sport and you like your medical stuff, would you want to teach first aid or mm -hmm. so forth doing that? And now I am now a part-time um, instructor, tutor for England FA. So I actually teach new managers, new coaches, um, how to deal with football injuries part-time. And then via that, that's how I've ended up in my career that I'm in now, which is in um, retail, as in as in a, a new business. So. And so, so there's this great statement that you made. That yeah. You've seen a lot in your life. Yeah, yeah. You've seen nothing as weird, strange it's, as this. The, the thing is, what, what I absolutely can't fathom is I remember things in my time, and I'm sure everyone else has remembered them. We had recessions we had flu viruses, but everybody just seemed to get on and it was no big worry or anything. When it was Northern Ireland, whether it was the Gulf, we were told who we needed to, 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 to look at, who we were um, to communicate with. There was always a structure, always something tangible mm. that was there. You could physically see it. When Sizewell had that uh, leak, mm. I didn't hear the country going into lockdown. Mm. I didn't hear, like, everyone must shut up, don't talk to anyone, everyone locking. Um, and now, 
having seen all that, I've seen explosions, I've seen starvation, I've seen injury, I've seen everything. But for me, the coronavirus and how every person that you see is reacting to it differently. One minute, one person is standing two metres away from someone and saying, don't come near me, don't come near me. And then they'll go into Aldi's and they'll push past you to get to the product. <laughs> and I just find it's the most bizarre time in my entire life. I've never seen anything like it. And also where a government has actually turned around to people and say, don't go out. And a whole nation has virtually agreed from shops shutting down to gyms. And so I don't what know. What would you say would be the more appropriate policy response i think what they, what they've done now which is Open if up. they said if they if they'd have opened up and put hand sanitizers masks and everything from i think we could have kept the economy going i think because one thing to me which i think has been missed massively um and i i'm really worried about the statistics when they come out because i don't think they're out yet but i'm positive is how many deaths have actually happened that are non-coronavirus related mm. that could have been prevented if the people had been doing their everyday, you know, that person who something's gone seriously wrong in their life and they're suicidal. Mm. Mm. You know, sometimes someone can be saved just by somebody talking to someone. Mm. How many people are we, you know, what's the increase going to be like on that? What's the increase going to be like on people actually leaving the house now that are not nervous? You know, how many more people are going to stay at home? Do you think mental health issues are... I think it's... Oh, definite, definite. I mean, we've, we've already got a society of younger people now that are opening up and talking about mental health issues such as anxiety and stress. And once... Once... Will it happen? I don't know. But... At some point, I'm hoping coronavirus w uh, was a history because this is history in the making. Because will we ever see, we might see it again, the lockdown at the moment because we're not quite through it. But maybe in two years' time, after everything's done, will we ever see anything like this again? I don't know. But this is the, you know, the young people's. This is something they will talk about for the rest of their lives. This will be something they'll be sat with their grandchildren saying, you'll never believe what happened in 2020. Um, and I, I do think, yeah, I think the lockdown has probably caused a lot more challenges than meets the eye. And I think if we balanced out the statistics of people dying with COVID, because there is a big difference with and of, um, and people dying outside of COVID, I think the ratio is gonna be awful on the side of people that um, are mentally uh, challenged. So we're already low, we're already not going out. Um, mm. And some people which did venture out, which had that nervous disposition, that anxiety, I wonder whether this has just exacerbated it made it 10 times worse mm. and now that person who actually did get up and go to the shop even though it was a struggle will they now now corona mm. so for me it is 
definitely out of everything I've ever seen in my entire life from being a child to being in Africa to being in Bosnia to being in the Gulf this is definitely the strangest so, time in my life yeah so do you think that that not enough has been done by the government and by healthcare workers and others to minimize the degree to which fear and panic are gripping ordinary people i don't think they're doing enough to to alleviate it yeah. i think if anything they're increasing it yeah. because you've now seen boris johnson we're about 20 weeks too late wearing a mask in a shop. Right. Now, that's another question. Do you think that um, the fear and the anxiety surrounding this issue can actually make you more vulnerable to catching the virus? Does it lower your immunity system? I think... I think Anxiety and stress can make you more vulnerable to, to anything. Objectively, physically, yeah. you can actually reduce your yeah, immunity. Yeah, As, so you think that yeah because it, it, it's always well known that if we're tired, stress can create um, illnesses. You know, mm. you can go and you can go and um, I, I reckon there'll be a massive increase, for instance, in one particular one, IBS irritable bowel disease. Now, some people have got that because obviously they were born and that was the way, but actually it's increased awfully by stress and anxiety. Specifically IBS? Uh, no, I just, I was just thinking about it because it could also happen in people with, um, because IBS is a high, is a high end one actually for anxiety and stress. And if you can get it down, you can reduce the symptoms. You you may not get rid of it, but you can definitely. It's very stress related. Yes. And when you say high yeah. end, you mean that it's one of the it's one of the yeah. relationships. Yeah, yeah. Disease and stress. Yeah. And so is blood you, pressure, high blood pressure. So you would predict that. I think that will go up. Yeah, I think we will. I think we will see people with high blood pressure. I think we'll see people with higher cholesterol rates. And what about people who are already with, with as you put it, mentally challenged, who already have conditions? Some of these people... Are going to get much worse? Yeah, I do, yeah. I and don't think they're going to... Yeah, I do. Psychiatric yeah. wars? Yes. Yeah. You don't yeah. have the statistics yet. I, I, you would predict that... I predict... I'm... I, I'm, I'm, I have... No, I don't come from a, um, a background. It's just my own little bit. I've worked in care myself for about 10 years and I have seen how difficult it is to access help anyway. And now I think we're looking at 10 times, 15 times more challenges because... 10 to 15 times? I think so, yeah. Of that order of magnitude? Yeah, I do. I think, I think, I think we're looking... I, I won't be surprised if there's, there wasn't a 10 to 15% increase in suicides. Mm. Because now, no, one's going, re, no one's recording it. Mm, that's true. Going back to what you said about the um, mentally challenged um, people. Um, with your experience in care, it's been, what you said, 10 years. Yeah. Would you say what, what I'm a tra I'm actually a qualified care quality commission I see. manager, still registered. I see. What degree of of um, 
responsibility would you attribute to the environmental factors for people having mental health issues, as opposed to intrinsic things that is just their predisposition? If you had to sort of make a percentage, what what percentage would you say is caused by the environment as opposed to? Yeah, I think I think thirty percent is more where someone's born with it. Or, Only thirty percent. Yeah, thirty, forty percent. Thirty percent is. Yeah, and nearly every other mental issue is from an outside influence. Really. So whether it's abuse, whether it's PTSD, whether it's. I mean schizophrenia, bipolar yeah, disorder. Yeah, that's the thirty percent. Because oh, with see. that, with that's yeah, intrinsic. yeah, because. Think environmental factors. No, I think. To do with that. I think we're. I think what. I think there are some environmental um, challenges where with because of the way we are, everyone needs an answer. I do think the medical world is forced into a position that it doesn't really want to be in. And that is putting everyone into a certain box mm. rather than being able to say to you, do you know something? Why don't you just come round? Why don't we just go and have a chat, have a cup of tea every day? And or a cup of coffee and just meet people and see how you get on. Instead, they're very quick now to diagnose you with something that, you know, ADHD, for instance, how much is attention deficit disorder? How fast has that gone up in, in um, diagnosis? You know, five, ten years ago, no one had ever heard of it. Three to four years ago, one in five kids. Right. You what talk to parents now, a, a parent comes in here, I guarantee you if they're looking to get something, some help, they'll go, oh, you don't know what if you've got anything for a child that's got ADHD, do you? Rather than saying, actually, my child is quite hyperactive and needs a lot of stimulation. And, and I, the same is with bipolar, isn't it? Everyone, every, so many people are being diagnosed. Yeah, I think it's overdiagnosed. Yeah. Because I do think the medical world, you are pushed into... Can you imagine going to your GP and you say to him, do you know something? I've had a really bad week. I'm feeling really down. And rather than the GP say, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you a couple of antidepressants and see how you get on for two weeks. They turn around to you and say, for goodness sakes, everybody has a bad week. Why don't you just go home, have a cup of coffee, go and speak to your friends and family and come back in. They'd be fired on the spot. You can't do that because we have to have an answer. Mm. And that, that's what I think the challenge is with coronavirus now. One of my big things with coronavirus right now is I think they, they were told prior to coronavirus hitting this country, I think they had a, a, a quite a large world meeting with other leaders and all of them were fearful that we were going to lose millions of people. I think it's worked out that it's not that, that, but now they can't just turn around and say, actually, do you know something we've predicted wrong? Because imagine if they turn around and say, actually, we got it wrong. Not that many people will die. And then in two years time, something does happen and they say, we're going into lockdown. Everyone goes, well, you got it wrong then. So I'm a little bit, we're all waiting to see what's going to happen in America because now the number of infections is constantly increasing, but the deaths are relatively low, low. proportionately. So yeah, that's, that's a big question mark. That's one it? of the biggest question marks I've had. And this is my big thing where I think that the TV, the TV some of the news uh, has been 
I used to love GMTV, for instance. I used to love Pierce Morgan, uh, and I thought he, he was quite thing. But I actually think he's been one of the biggest instigators of fear with coronavirus from the start to finish. Um, because they've emphasised how many people have died in care homes. Right. But what they've not done is, what was the average death rate in a care home prior to corona? And I'll tell you exactly what. It was never truly recorded, so the newspapers wouldn't have had that figure. Right. But the chances are, up and down the country, it was more than likely seven to 10,000 a week, mm. or seven to 10,000 a month, which is actually below the normal coronavirus death. Mm. Mm. And last month, we were below the average annual death right, for the last five years. Oh, really? So, I'm a bit sceptical, to so be honest. So, why don't we finish on a positive note? Yep. We had, a, we had a great chat. Yep. Give us something really positive from your experience in the Army. Yep. That you can help the listeners, whoever's going to hear this. What would you say? How to... The mental attitude we should have to this post-corona... One of the best things that I've learned is you should never concentrate on the past because you will never make the future better. And I've learned that if we keep blaming a society, today's society, for a hundred years ago society, nothing will ever change. And one of the best things I've, all, I've also learned is when you chat to someone, treat them no matter whether they're poor or rich, treat them as you want to be treated yourself and you'll be surprised on how many really good people there are actually out there. Because I was actually sceptical being in the army. I, I thought everybody I meet is going to be against me or if I went to the Middle East, they'd hate me. If I went to Africa, they'd hate me. And actually, no, it's completely the opposite. In actual fact, the positive is 90% of people are good people. Mm. And I would say, take your time out of your day and try and make someone smile as a goal every day. And it'll make you mentally well. Very, very good advice, Jeff. Thank you so much. No worries. Thank you very much. Cheers.